So I wanted to explore an important theme uh, today, which is working with, uh, with reactivity, which goes right to the heart of the teachings and practices. But I wanted to do so also in the context of our times now, uh, being in the midst of this crisis. I wanted to come back to a theme which I've mentioned several times, which I hope is on most of our minds, which is to understand the crisis, not just in terms of the challenges and difficulties, but also in terms of the opportunities or gifts and, and that we may, in many cases, not simply want to go back to the so-called old normal, right? That we may have had insights that the old normal, whether that's personal or relational or on a social level or collective level, is that there can be some learning and transformation related to what I'm calling the old normal. And so this whole crisis can have some similarities to offering the positive elements of that we find on a retreat that traditionally might have been found on a vision quest. In both of those forms, one goes away from the usual habits and there can be a new way of seeing new insights that one brings home. And uh, also sometimes that happens on even on a vacation. And so there may be many ways in which um, each of us have had uh, insights or gosh, I want to live a little differently in these last weeks. I've heard that from a lot of people. You know, I remember talking to several people who were who have uh, more or less eight hour a day office jobs who say, well, I don't mind so much the length of work, although one person said four hours is much better <laughs> than eight hours. But I heard people say, well, eight hours is a way, way better when I can determine when they are and not simply go to an office. So, uh, you know, I was talking with my niece who's working at home and she loves working for two hours, taking a half hour hike, coming back to work, you know, deciding, oh, now's the time for my shower and so forth, right? So there can be insights. And I even saw, I think yesterday in the New York Times, there was an article about many people saying, uh, you know, I'm not sure about going back to this office work. You know, again, it's uh, length of hours can be an issue, but it's partly also just that continual unbroken work. Or we may have had really insights and discoveries on a, just on a very personal level, talking to a lot of people who found that these times led them to really ask, uh, how am I living moment to moment? What's important to me? When some of the usual activities and the busyness have dropped away, there has been a chance to, to ask questions. And I know for myself, I mentioned this uh, the last time I was on, uh, some of you know that uh, I was scheduled to be on retreat the whole month of March at Spirit Rock, which closed down on March 15th. Um, I was at home and kept the retreat going through the end of March, but then I've actually continued in somewhat modified form with a retreat that I'm now on my 10th week doing about five to six hours these days, a formal practice a day, and even having um, some elements of a schedule that really enhance, uh, for me personally, a considerably higher level of presence and awareness than I had before the crisis. And I don't think I wanna go back, right? I wanna continue and I hope that each of us may have had insights like that or discoveries um, that really can represent your next growth, our next uh, growth, our next level of development. So I wanted just to invite everyone just to take a moment 
like a silent moment right now, I want to ask everyone to reflect quietly internally, what have been some of your insights or discoveries from these last weeks that you want to keep going? Thank you. I, I, I know maybe like you, um, I've been walking around my neighborhood a lot and uh, I've met and got to talk at some length with many neighbors who I didn't even know before this. Neighbors, actually, some of them not real close, a few blocks away who I meet in my walks. And so it's actually pretty rich to have met how many people have had similar experiences. Yeah. And so I think it's a question, how do we keep some of the positives of these last weeks, now getting into months, how do we keep some of the positives going? And we want to be careful, I think, again, personally and collectively about simply returning to the old normal. There's a lot of pressure to do that, but there's also a lot of insight. It can be personal insight, but I think there's also a lot of social insight about the so-called old normal and some of the problems. So people say, well, you know, the current crisis has really made visible uh, the failures of healthcare or the limitations of planning for difficulties and disasters. And, you know, I mean, if we learn socially, we will apply all this to climate issues, right? Because climate issues will make the current crisis look like the proverbial piece of cake, right? So uh, can we learn from this? Can we, can we have more widespread healthcare available? Can we look at, um, you know, the different dimensions of inequality, which have been very, very clearly exposed? Do you know that um, African Americans are dying for a variety of causes at twice the rate from the virus? For a variety of reasons, and there are all sorts of other dimensions of inequality, which are very clearly brought out somehow we don't want to return to those. Can we learn collectively? Can we learn individually? Can we learn as community? So it's in that context that I wanted to actually continue with a talk series, which I've been giving for almost a year, which is entitled uh, From the Ordinary Mind to the Buddha Mind. In other words, how do we go from our ordinary habitual way of being to awakening? This is the always the, as it were, the journey uh, that is presented in the teachings of the Buddha. But what I've been doing in these last, uh, really last many months, is to identify 10 dimensions of transformation that uh, we really typically notice as we're going through changes and that we develop in each of them. And it's, I found it helpful to identify the different dimensions. So for example, I've looked at, I think the first I looked at was what's the nature of our thinking in our ordinary mind. And by ordinary, I mean habitual, like our habitual conditioned mind. Uh, and so, What's the nature of our thinking? I also looked, what's the nature of our hearts, our emotions? What's our ordinary conditioned experience of the body or lack of experience of the body? What's our sense of self? I also looked at the, um, how we experience time. How we, you know, how, I, what's our ordinary conditioning around time? 
and so forth. Um, and I think the last one I looked at was the dimension of what's unconscious for us. Uh, I looked at the psychological unconscious and just more broadly, some of our levels of not knowing or ignorance. And so I have several more to go. Uh, but in each of these, I had a very, very simple structure for the talks and explorations and encourage people to, to practice uh, outside of our gatherings. The simple structure was this, what's first, the nature of our habitual or ordinary conditioning around a given dimension. First, number two, what does it seem to look like when there's awakening according to a particular dimension? What's the what happens with the thinking, with the heart, with the sense of time and so forth, with as we awaken in moments of awakening and for as much as we can tell from the text, from the ancient text for uh, a Buddha, for an awakened being. So first, what's the habitual conditioned uh, experience? Secondly, uh, what does awakening look like? And then thirdly, as it were, how do we go from one to two? How do we practice? How do we develop in these dimensions? So very, very simple structure. And uh, today, you know, in the context of the uh, current crisis, I wanted to look at a further dimension. And this, in some ways, may be the most central of all of them. I think it's the most central in terms of the traditional teachings. And this is looking at reactivity. And I'm going to give a definition of reactivity just in a moment. But I'm wanting to look at reactivity as an understanding of uh, what the Buddha called dukkha, usually translated as suffering, I think better translated as reactivity, although not as literal. And essentially point to the way that the reactive mind is very, very common in our ordinary experience. That awakening entails moving from reactivity to being responsive. It's one simple way to say it. And I'll give a little more clarification of the terms in a moment. And then thirdly, I'll look at how we you know, how we go from the ordinary conditioning uh, to that responsiveness. We can also call where we go when we awaken, we can call it freedom, we can call it liberation, we can call it responsiveness. Responsiveness is probably a very ordinary term. So by reactivity, I'm talking about a way that we're compulsively driven. And in the traditional teachings, we're compulsively driven, on the one hand, to grasp after what we take to be pleasant, and on the other hand, to push away what we take to be unpleasant. And that there is a compulsive, conditioned nature to this reactivity. I'm, I'm distinguishing reactivity from responsiveness. And of course, we can also uh, be less compulsive and choose to move away from the unpleasant and, you know, go out for a pleasant meal. That needn't be reactive. We can do that in a way that's relatively responsive and free. And in that sense, I'm using the word reactive to mean something compulsive, conditioned, habitual, and problematic, right? And there are, again, ways that we might, um, you know, have, I don't know, a pleasant bath, a pleasant meal, and that needn't be a problem. Similarly, we can, you know, if in meditation, if I, if my back becomes very unpleasant, and it's hard to be mindful, I can decide to move. That's not necessarily reactive. And so there, there's, a, there's a whole spectrum there. 
but we're really pointing to the places where it's more reactive, relatively reactive, automatic, habitual, unconscious, conditioned. Those are some of the, the adjectives we might use. And so in the uh, traditional teachings, yeah, and maybe one other point of clarification. Again, I'm, so I'm using reactivity in a way that, I, that has this more focused definition. In normal English, we sometimes would use reaction in a way that's synonymous, saying the same thing as when we say responsive. So I'm, I'm giving a clearer distinction of those terms where reactivity is what is problematic, conditioned, habitual, and responsive comes out of a, a more out of an inner freedom. Okay, so the teachings that we have on this, I think, are right at the heart of the 2600 years of Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddha. And I'm so what I'm going to be giving fairly briefly today, I think, is the heart of this whole tradition, the heart of the teachings of the Buddha, and it's sometimes not clearly seen. I think the Buddha gave, I think, the clearest teachings on this in my reading in two locations. One of them is in the teachings of dependent origination, which were the teachings that he gave uh, that came from his own awakening, the night of his awakening. And the other teachings come through one that's familiar to people who listen to me on Wednesdays, the teaching of the two arrows. So I want to talk first about the uh, teaching of dependent origination. And here we can, I'm going to have a, an image come up. If, so if we could have the image up now, that'll, and I'll explicate this in a very, I think, a very simple way. And this, in this model of dependent origination, we actually look at moment-to-moment -moment experience. And so we can see. So, Gabrielle, if you can put that up right now, now is the time. Great. So this is, a, this is part of the model of dependent origination. It's not the whole model. It's sort of the middle part, and I'm going to just focus there, and maybe another time I'll give the whole model. But this is the this is the model that is the uh, really the simplest and most accessible way of seeing what our practice is about. What it says is that in every moment there is some contact through our senses with something. So I can have a sensation in my body, I can hear a sound, can have a smell. And in uh, Buddhist psychology, thinking is the sixth sense. So I, this would include having a thought, experiencing an emotion and so forth. So in every experience, it's said, every moment, there is some level of contact. Related to the contact, there is secondly, a feeling tone. This is called Vedana. Some of you may have heard that term in the uh, in the teachings. And the feeling tone can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Most of our experiences are in the neutral zone. And this is this is actually a spectrum. Um, that there's a spectrum that sometimes is said to go from agony to ecstasy. And most of our experience is relatively neutral. Some experiences are pleasant. Relatively few experiences are pleasant. Relatively few experiences are unpleasant. We're quite interested in those. But every experience um, goes into one of those three categories. And um, they can be, again, be part of a spectrum. So it can be mildly pleasant, very pleasant, and so forth. Mildly unpleasant, uh, very unpleasant, and so forth. Now, this is really breaking down experience that often happens very automatically, but this is, there are these, these different parts. And so thirdly, when there's not mindfulness 
And when there are habitual tendencies, when there's something pleasant, we tend to want it or want more of it or want it to continue. When there's something unpleasant, we tend to not want it, not want it to continue. And when there's something neutral, we tend to space out. And so there are these tendencies. And then fourthly, when there's that wanting, we tend to grasp. When there's the not wanting, we tend to push away. When there's the neutral, we're still a little bit spaced out. But the key aspect here is that we may go from contact to grasping, sometimes virtually automatically. I have a conversation with someone, someone says something I don't like, I instantly say something negative right back. And so I may go from contact to grasping in a split second. Part of what we'll do with our practice and mindfulness is to actually be able to study the movement from contact to grasping more in slow motion. And so it breaks down and we actually start to have some choice. I notice unpleasant feeling tone. I notice not wanting. I notice tendencies to want to push away or say something negative, And I have some choice here. So what's with the practice will uh, we'll have some choice to slow this down so it's not quite so automatic. So very commonly, we go from contact to grasping or pushing away in a split second in a very habitual way. It's, not, it's step number four, the reactivity, or which I'm calling reactivity. This is the grabbing hold or the pushing away. And so we can see that this is really a process that especially is linked to the experience of the pleasant and the unpleasant. And so, again, I'll come a little bit later to talking how we'll practice, but this is right at the heart of the practice because what the teachings are going to be about is to see if we can have more and more wisdom and mindfulness so that we don't go automatically into grasping and pushing away, that we have some choice, we can intervene. And a pleasant feeling tone doesn't necessarily lead to grasping. Someone says something nasty, I have, as I practice more, I may have increasingly a sense of centeredness and non-reactivity and can respond to that person out of non-reactivity or freedom. Again, I have unpleasant, let's say emotions, I have some irritation, to use the example from the meditation, I have some irritation from something happened yesterday, I notice the irritation, and rather than just go in continual loops, blaming the other person or blaming myself or both, I can actually say, let me be mindful. Let me be mindful of this. And maybe with the irritation, oh, I come to sadness. And I process, in a sense, the emotions so that I can actually, when I call up that person, I can be non-reactive. And so the whole of this teaching is to support us not automatically moving from step one to step four, not automatically moving from contact, and especially from pleasant or unpleasant, into reactivity. Okay, I think we can uh, release the image and come back, can come back to me now. Thanks. I would maintain that this is right at the heart of the Buddhist teaching, and, I, and this is where I like to translate dukkha as reactivity. Many of you know that the whole aim of the practice, right at the center of the practice, the Buddha once said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. I could translate that as I teach about reactivity and the end of reactivity or the development of freedom. And we can see this in various teachings, the Four Noble Truths and so forth, um, where the first teaching is there is dukkha, the second is there is a cause to dukkha, Third, there's the end of dukkha. That's 
you know, what I'm calling freedom. And fourth, there is a path to the end of dukkha. Now, the way I've just stated it may be quite clear, but in some ways the teaching can be confusing. And this is because there are multiple levels or multiple meanings of the word dukkha. And we have an oral tradition from the Buddha and he didn't go and systematize and say, okay, well, I've got four meanings of dukkha and here's the one that's most central to our practice. He just talked about dukkha in multiple ways. And this, I think, has led to a certain amount of confusion about what's important for our practice. I think if we see dukkha as reactivity, a lot of things become clear. So I want to briefly go through these meanings. Uh, I want to identify four meanings of dukkha that we have from the text. And this can, for some of us, can make some sense of where there may have been confusion. The first meaning for dukkha is the meaning that the dukkha is the unpleasant. It's something that's a little uncomfortable or uneasy. It's related to the word in the original language for an axle uh, being slightly um, uh, what out of sync with the whole, uh, that the, the axle doesn't fit in the axle hole in an adequate way, so the ride is bumpy for the cart. That's related to those words. This is called technically dukkha dukkha. And uh, uh, it's connected with uh, unpleasant experiences in life. So this is where the Buddha sometimes says dukkha is birth, old age, sickness and death. And so this is dukkha as the unpleasant. But if we ask the question, do we come to the end of dukkha? which is the aim of the practice, it's clear that we don't come, as long as we're alive, to the end of the unpleasant. And the Buddha himself was awake and had, as all human beings do, numerous unpleasant experiences. When he was older, he had headaches and backaches, right? That's dukkha on the first definition. So if the Buddha has awakened and is beyond dukkha and has come to the end of dukkha, it doesn't mean the end of the unpleasant. And that's also a reason why I find to use the word suffering as a translation can be misleading. We don't come to the end of the unpleasant. We don't come to the end of the pain. We come to the end. We come towards the end of not being reactive towards the unpleasant. So that's that's the first meaning. The second meaning of dukkha is of the discomfort of change, the fact that the pleasant will eventually become unpleasant. This is called viparanama dukkha. And again, when we ask, does this get at the meaning of the end of dukkha? The answer has to be no, because the pleasant is going to continually go to the unpleasant at times. And this doesn't change when we're awake. The third meaning of dukkha that's given is called sankara dukkha. And this is related to the fact that ordinary conditioned experience is not ultimately satisfying for what we want. There's a, a way that ordinary experience is not going to make us completely happy. No amount of uh, good food, good relationship, good meditation will make us ultimately happy. And so this third sense of dukkha also doesn't really give us help with understanding what the end of dukkha is. And it's the fourth meaning of dukkha as reactivity, as in that teaching I gave uh, from the Buddha, also very prominently in the teaching of the two arrows, which I, which I give a lot, the teaching that uh, the Buddha gave where he asked, uh, um, Everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner uh, different from a non-practitioner? He said, everyone experiences the unpleasant at times. It's like being shot by an arrow. Maybe unpleasant physical experiences or 
emotional experiences and our personal experiences, that happens at times. Everyone experiences that. That's being shot by the first arrow. But he said the non-practitioner will, because of the first arrow, shoot a second arrow. This would be the reactivity. This is the something unpleasant happens. I blame myself. I blame others. I go into negative narratives. I go into mind loops and so forth. This is shooting the second arrow. That second arrow is reactivity. That's what we come to the end of. He says the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. And that's the whole course of our practice. So to me, this is the heart of the teaching. Again, I'm, I'm wanting to make the claim that this is at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha. The entire teachings of the Buddha and the entire tradition is about going towards from reactivity to non-reactivity. In a moment, I'll say a little bit more about what non-reactivity is because it sounds very ordinary. Another way of saying in ordinary English, we go from reactivity to responsiveness. Now, responsiveness can feel like something small, but it's actually huge. And But I like the fact that we can use a very ordinary English word and a very ordinary English phrase from reactivity to responsiveness to get at the heart of this whole teaching. And so I thought it helpful maybe to remind ourselves what are some of the difficult experiences of reactivity that we may have had related to our crisis. You know, so we could think about the various experiences. Some have experienced anxiety or fear. These can be forms of reactivity, maybe boredom, maybe anger or irritation at oneself, at one's partner, family member, friend, you know, at the government, whatever. You know, that can that can be there. We can be judgmental towards ourselves, towards others. These are all forms of reactivity. We can have, again, negative narratives which keep the reactivity going in various ways. There can be loneliness, you know, all sorts of uh, ways the reactivity can form. Of course, interpersonal tensions, difficulties, conflicts, especially, you know, being in close quarters. You know, I've talked with several people whom I, whom I mentor who've talked about these issues arising. You know, essentially, um, under stress, our old habits come back, and a lot of our old habits are about reactivity. We sometimes say, under stress, we regress. What do we regress to? Our old habits our old patterns. Some of them come back, some of them which may not have even been around for a while. The upside of that is that when there's reactivity, there's a chance to work with our habits. As one of my students uh, on Wednesday mornings would say, and I, I won't say the full English, but I'll say it in code. Oh, there's reactivity happening. There's a chance to learn. Another effing growth opportunity <laughs> when there's reactivity, right? So um, that's the upside. Uh, reactivity isn't just a curse, but it's an opportunity to actually start or continue to clean out that habit. And there's a time in our practice when we become actually interested in how we lose it in our reactivity. And that can be a very a mature place when we start to get interested, not just in the good experiences, but in how we lose it. The second uh, part of what I want to explore, what does non-reactivity look like? Here I'll be a little bit briefer. Uh, non-reactivity, I'm using that again. It really is code for um, being awake, being free, being responsive, and often the Buddha, when he was talking about awakening, he talked more negatively and really talked about the end, he said, of greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed and hatred are really the form, you know, expressions of the form of uh, grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And so he often talked about that. So I had some 
readings. Uh, I wanted to just give a few readings from the uh, the text called the Dhammapada. It's very. This is one of the core books of the teachings. This is the translation by my colleague Gil Fransdale of the Dhammapada. I'll just read two places. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging. They are luminous and completely liberated in this life. That's one of the accounts. That's one of the accounts of uh, what it means to be awake or non-reactive. I think I had one more. For someone at the journey's end, freed of sorrow, freed of dukkha, I should say, freed of dukkha, liberated in all ways, released from all bonds, no fever exists. It's the kind of the fever of reactivity. And again, I, I could use, uh, we can use different words. There's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of, um, you know, we might call it liberation. These are terms that are sometimes used. Again, responsive, being able to be responsive means that there is an inner freedom. I'm not driven by my reactivity. And this is, again, a language we can use. There's an old Zen story, some of you may know, where uh, the Buddha, it wasn't the Buddha, no, it was a Zen teacher. I think this was from about the 10th century in China. And the Zen teacher was asked, what's the essence of all the teachings? And his students, you know, waited for his response, waited for his answer. What's the essence of all the teachings? And some might have thought he would give some metaphysical answer, like the essence of all the teachings is the complete interpenetration of self and other in luminous light in which our fixations are immediately dissolved. How's that sound? Interested? Anyone interested? Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? Or, you know, we might say, what? Um, my fixated thoughts are transformed through the meeting of loving kindness, wisdom, and mindfulness, and a thorough, a lot, you know, a thorough uh, walking of the Eightfold Path. That sounds pretty good, too. He didn't say that. The Zen teacher, what's the essence of all the teachings? The answer, appropriate response. That's it. Appropriate response every moment, moment to moment. What's a wise response that comes out of wisdom and compassion? You know, so that's another way this is talked about. Uh, again, it's really looking at the fact that without this inner freedom, and the freedom I'm talking about, I think is both an inner freedom, being free from reactivity, and it's an outer freedom to respond rather than react uh, with others. And it's saying that, uh, that this inner freedom is very crucial you know, in our culture, we especially think of more of outer freedoms, political freedoms uh, connected, for example, with the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, assembly, and so forth. And those are very important. But I think here what's being pointed to is an inner freedom. And what's interesting, and maybe many of you have reflected on this, is that people can be in very oppressive situations and still have an inner freedom. Some of you may have read the accounts of uh, Tibetan practitioners in Chinese camps who kept a profound inner freedom despite torture and other horrors, right? And I've read, you know, I remember, some of you may know, is a very remarkable set of books from an author named Etty Hillesum, E-T-T-Y-H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. Anyone know her work? Yeah, some of you do. So she was from Amsterdam, lived during the time of the uh, Second World War, 
was Jewish and was, you know, in Amsterdam with, with the Nazi occupation, later in internment camps, later killed in concentration camp, she kept a journal which was somehow preserved and it has remarkable, remarkable stories of a profound inner freedom in the most extreme conditions. So we know that that's possible, but it's really pointing. Ideally, we want both inner freedom and great political freedom. Okay, anyone for that? Yes. Okay, so, um, but here we're particularly talking about an inner, an inner freedom. And it's a freedom which has also the strong, strong heart quality. Uh, this is from, again, well-known phrase from the Metta Sutta. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. There's also a freedom that's expressed through kindness. It's expressed through a sense of the mind being bright, from the Buddha. This mind is radiant and brightly shining. It is freed from defilements, freed from greed, hatred, and delusion. And the Buddha also talked at times of being able to touch what he called the deathless, to touch qualities of really our being. These are more, you know, I, I would say that the, the sense of freedom and non-reactivity, there's a spectrum that goes from when we're mindful in a moment and non-reactive in a moment or non-reactive over a period of time, going all the way to the depths of insight into the deeper natures of our being, where there can be a sense of luminosity, of this deep sense of metta. There can be a sense of open, spacious, luminous, uh, knowing in a way in which we're not distinct from anyone or anything else. And in fact, the ordinary sense of self is no longer present. That is part of the meaning, I think, of freedom for the Buddha. So we could say more there. Maybe I'll say a little bit more about that next week. But then I want to close with this last part. How do we go from one to two? How do we train to work through reactivity? And I'm going to talk about six ways of doing that and focus some on the first four. And I'll mention all of them, but I'll focus a little bit more on the latter two uh, next time. So six ways to transform reactivity, to move from reactivity to responsiveness, reactivity to freedom. The first is cultivate moments of non-reactivity. We can do that through mindfulness and metta. So number one, cultivate moments of non-reactivity in various ways. Number two, be mindful of reactivity. Number three, understand reactivity as in the uh, teachings I've given. Number four, develop the heart practices, metta, loving kindness, forgiveness, compassion in relationship to our own reactivity and reactivity of others. Number five, at times do psychological work with particular patterns of reactivity, particular old, uh, old patterns. And number six, learn how to be non-reactive more and more in one's action, in one's speech, in, one way, in, in one, one's way of being with others. So again, it's a reactivity, a wonderful uh, focus. So how to cultivate, I'll go through the first four especially and save the, I'll do it pretty briefly now because of time, I want to get to discussion. So first, find ways to cultivate non-reactivity. This might be developing mindfulness. It could be developing metta. Finding even when we have short moments or a few moments of non-reactivity. It's really, this becomes the starting point, cultivating non-reactivity. It may be that, for example, what helps you simply to be in the present moment without wanting anything, without reacting, 
For some, it can be to, I don't know, to be with beauty, to be with the earth, to be in the forest. For many of us, our minds come to a sense of ease. We don't want anything. We're totally satisfied with the way things are. That's a kind of non-reactivity. So some of us may cultivate non-reactivity in being with the wild. Secondly, be mindful of reactivity. When there's reactivity present, study it. This can be either in meditation or in our moment-to-moment uh, -moment life. Find ways to be mindful of reactivity. We sometimes say mindfulness of anger is not angry. Mindfulness of irritation is not irritated. Mindfulness of being judgmental is not judgmental. There can be a way that we bring in some non-reactivity and study reactivity. So could say a lot about this level. Let me just say a few things. One is that in studying, being mindful of reactivity, it's important to know what the level of intensity is. There's going to be a range where we can be mindful of reactivity and a range where it's too hard. So I like to use, as many of you know, the scale of one to 10, the Olympic divers degree of difficulty scale, and get to know when uh, mindfulness is possible. It may be for us, it may be up to level six. For level seven to 10, mindfulness is too hard. And then we do other things that help us come back to balance with those levels of intensity. So that's the first thing. We have to ascertain uh, what the level of difficulty is. Then, much as we did in the meditation, we can be with reactivity, with the anger, irritation, and as in I did in the meditation, we can say, let me be with this at the level of the body. Notice the emotions. Notice the, uh, notice the, the tape loops, the narratives, and so forth. And we can also, I think very significantly, go back to that teaching of dependent origination and look especially at pleasant experiences and notice how there might be a tendency with pleasant experiences to go to grasping. So when a pleasant experience comes up, comes up in meditation or otherwise, just study it and look for, look for what's happening. Notice the tendencies with the experience of the pleasant or the unpleasant to go towards reactivity. The third is to remember the teachings, reflect on the teachings, reflect on these teachings that I've given the dependent origination, a right dependent arising, the movement from contact to reactivity, the two arrows teaching, bear those in mind. The most common guidance that I give to people whom I'm mentoring when they've had a difficult experience is, I say, watch out for shooting the second arrow. Watch out for that tendency. And then the fourth is, I'll be very brief now, the fourth is, we can do heart practices. If there's reactivity, if we're being judgmental towards ourselves, or if we're going through a very hard experience, holding ourselves with kindness and compassion, maybe even forgiveness can be really crucial. Again, could say a lot more about these. I think I'll let that ride there. And then the fifth, again, sixth areas, which I won't go into depth now on, I wanna name. The fifth is taking advantage of reactivity to notice old, habitual patterns. It could be a pattern of judging oneself harshly when it does things don't go as you wish. So there are a lot of potential here for what we might call uh, doing psychological work and uprooting old patterns. And then the sixth would be to uh, learn better how to be non-reactive non when we speak, when we act and so forth. So let me just close with uh, two things. First, a reading from the great Thai teacher from the Thai forest tradition, Achan Cha. This is really a description of our meditation. Just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows and see who comes to visit. This is mindfulness practice. <laughs> see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of uh, scenes and actions 
all kinds of actors, all kinds of temptations and stories. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. So just stay and notice reactivity. That's the instruction. And then let me close by inviting us just to sit for a moment and ask, what was helpful for me from our morning? Maybe from the teachings, the instructions, maybe from something that occurred in your meditation. What was helpful? And what intention do you have for next week? Because I want to invite people for next week, if you wish, to continue looking into reactivity and using some of the practices I've named. So just take a moment now. What's been helpful? What are your intentions for the next week? And raise your hand if you'd like to focus on this area in the next week. Don't have to, but raise your hand. So I'm hoping that many of us will, and we can have some material for next week from your experience of the week. So now we could uh, have some time for any uh, discussion, any sharing. Maybe you've had a insight into reactivity yourself in the last period of time. Could be a question you, you want to ask. And you can do this either by the raise hand function or if you want to, uh, that's probably the easiest, but you could also send a question to the host uh, via the chat function. So Donald, um, the first question that came in from yeah. Viv is neutral the same as equanimity? Is neutral the same as equanimity? Um, the short answer is no, that um, the neutral in the text is described as neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and it's more a quality of every experience. And it's more like a given. These, uh, the neutral is just happening. How we respond, that could be where the equanimity comes in. Equanimity is about maintaining a balanced, non-reactive attitude to whatever we're experiencing. So the equanimity can occur, and it's really where it's probably most valuable, is actually when things are get very pleasant or especially when they get very unpleasant, when they're difficult experiences, the equanimity can maintain a balance and non-reactivity. Those are two of the qualities of, of equanimity. And so a lot of equanimity is learned precisely by what I focused on today. Equanimity is learned by working with where one is not equanimous, working with reactivity of different kinds. The more and more we work with and through reactivity, the more equanimous we become. Thanks. And then I'm going to unmute Janti as she also has a question. Okay. Shanti, can, can you go ahead? And will she appear on the screen? She should appear. She okay. raised her hand. Okay, very good. Maybe I should go out of gallery view? Okay. Hmm. okay. Um, she did just send in the question via chat, okay. so I'll read it to you. Okay. Uh, when dealing with someone with mental illness, oh how to not be reactive when they are extremely reactive and yelling at you. Yeah. Uh, so great question when someone is mentally ill and being very reactive, or it could be someone who's not mentally ill and becoming very reactive. <laughs> could be either. Um, so a few things. One of them is that I think it's helpful to see that this is probably on the scale of difficulty one to 10, this is up near the top. And so I'll say two things, one in direct response, but one sort of setting the context. 
that one of the ways we learn about reactivity and prepare ourselves for the most difficult experiences, and this one might be an eight or nine or a 10, one of the ways we do that is by working with reactivity where there are lower levels of intensity. Can I work with reactivity uh, which doesn't uh, push my buttons quite in the same way? Can I work with the reactivity which is more like a five or a six? So doing that a lot prepares us for the, the, the harder ones. So it's really a principle of all training has the principle you practice with lower degrees of difficulty to prepare yourself in part for higher degrees of difficulty. All training of any kind anywhere has that. Olympic divers prepare for the difficult dives first by, of course, they build up over years and years, but they practice with less difficult dives. So that's the first part of a response. The second part would be, would come in a few different ways and it might be to work with several of the dimensions that I talked about. First assess what's the degree of difficulty and let's say it is a nine or a 10. What I might do when uh, that person is reactive and it might be only afterwards is do what I can to come back to balance. The mindfulness may not be accessible during that time or afterwards, but I can do things which help me come back to balance. It might be do something physical, take a walk, um, talk to someone, uh, and so forth. Uh, so that's one way. Um, later, if it comes up, if, the, if we were maybe doing meditation or just during the day and the experience comes up and it's a little bit more in the workable range, we can use mindfulness probably especially helpful are going to be the heart practices. So we can, for example, knowing that this is coming out of someone's uh, almost like their wiring, it may, we may be able to go more towards compassion and even forgiveness. So compassion practices can be helpful. One very quick compassion practice is because I don't know whether you have compassion practices. One very quick one is from Kristen Neff, who writes a lot on, especially on self-compassion, three-part uh, compassion practice, which can be, it's, she does it for oneself, but it can be applied to others. But I think we could do it for oneself and others. First step, say, this is hard, this is difficult, something like that. Second, this is part of the human condition. This happens to many people, happens to others. And thirdly, is there a kind or helpful or heartfelt thought that I can give, you know, to the person, to oneself. So I would say those heart practices can be especially, especially helpful. And finding ways to stay centered, you know, again, a lot of this um, can be developed over time, but coming maybe into one's body, centering yourself, a lot of our reactivity is because we're not kind of grounded in our body. I know for myself, doing practices which centered my energy in the belly, kind of like a martial artist who gets centered in the belly. And that can, again, that can sometimes help with difficult situations so one doesn't get knocked around emotionally quite so much. Those are a few things, but from hearing it, I would probably go first to the compassion and forgiveness. <clears throat> Thank you. Could be someone sharing something which is something which has been useful for you or an insight. Okay, so I do have a question from Jean. Jean, you are unmuted, so go ahead and ask Donald your question. Oh, I guess that's me. Is that, you're hearing yes. me? We can hear okay, you. Okay, so, yeah, um, I guess... Um, I am questioning my own sense of equanimity in that um, when I learned that I would die if I ate shellfish after my first experience of anaphylaxis, I quickly just went in my mind to the fact that I could still eat all flesh fish, salmon and snapper and halibut, and I got over it. 
when this locked-in period happened, I said, okay, I kind of let it go. This is where we are. But in both cases, for instance, locked-in, um, as my rabbi said at the Passover Seder, um, yes, it's a plague, but we have Netflix. Um, so, yes, we're all limited in some way, but we have all these amazing tools available to us. Yeah. I guess my deepest fear is that when some really horrible, I won't even give a name to it, loss might happen, that I'm deluded that I have equanimity and my heart will burst. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jean. And um, I also um, heard something related to uh, Passover, something was sent around from relatives. It, it said... Um, you know, this is related to uh, Jewish people. We've had 10 plagues and 40 years in the desert. We can do this one. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's helpful. But um, let's see. Again, I would probably say it's the, the working with the... Uh, Difficult experiences that are at a lower level of difficulty will make it possible to have more balance or equanimity with something really, really hard. So it's our every moment that I'm, you know, non-reactive with a neighbor over a level five or six difficulty that builds the capacity for the most extreme or the most difficult. So again, I want to come back to come back to that. So our ongoing practice working with reactivity will have a profound effect on the more difficult ones. And so we can really prepare, you know, we can prepare by all the practices I named, you know, just in the way that, uh, you know, sometimes in some cases, um, the wisdom practices and these deep practices were sometimes in some spiritual traditions, considered preparation for death. You know, in other words, you prepare yourself your whole life for the most difficult experiences. Okay, that's one perspective. The second is that, uh, you know, there are ways of working with even the most difficult ones. And we can work again, we can just work with what we have and find that um, um, as we build the resources more and more, we can uh, we'll find that we have the capacities to be to be even with really difficult experiences. One's heart can burst, and you might be a little bit lost for a while, but especially with the resources of one's individual practice, community, mentors, teachings, and practices you may not be lost for long and you can come back. So I think there can be increasing faith and confidence in one's ability to handle difficult things. Again, the more and more we practice and the more and more we work with uh, the difficult experiences we have, including ones that are up, you'll have plenty of eight or nines or tens before the kind of really, really, really intense, you know, 10 plus experience you're describing. And so the key is work with those. As you develop more and more capacity there, you'll be you'll have more and more capacity for the 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 hardest ones. And again, remembering all the different resources, community, teachings, mentors, friends, and so forth. Great. So that's a that's the beginning, Gene, of a response. So thank you. Great. So I think we're we're at time now. So let me um, invite people. I could go on for another hour. Maybe some of you could, but but anyway, we're, I want to honor the time. And let's let's again um, take a little bit of time to set your intention if you'd like to work with these teachings and practices about transforming reactivity. Maybe I'll mention again those six ways of practicing. First, find ways to cultivate non-reactivity. If 
different ways, mindfulness, loving kindness, finding just activities in which you can be very, very present without wanting anything. Again, for many people, being with beauty or the wilds. So that's number one, cultivate non-reactivity. Number two, be mindful of reactivity with all the different points of guidance I gave. Number three, remember the teachings. You know, it could be the teach the two teachings we looked at today of the movement from contact to grasping or pushing away, number one, and then the two arrows teaching, number two. And then work with the heart practices if you if you've been taught those or have them. Uh, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness especially, but also could be joy or equanimity or practices as well. Maybe I can, I'll maybe go into more on those next time. And then I'll return to the, the fifth and sixth uh, next time on work using the re moments of reactivity at times to work with old patterns. And number six, learning to be more skillful outwardly when there's reactivity. So take a moment to set your intention for the next week if you choose to work with those. And I'll end with the traditional dedication of merit, which is to remember that we very much do our practice for ourselves and our own benefits, but especially at this time, we also know that our own practice can be of great benefit to others in all sorts of ways. And we remember that our practice is aiming to be of benefit both to ourselves and to others. And so we ask, may the morning session, may the morning session and its benefits be offered for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. So thank you, everyone. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and see hopefully many of you next week. Thank you. This is my favorite part of the morning. Thank you, Spirit Rock. Love you. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Thank you from Germany. Oh, wow. Oh, hi, Germany. Yeah, yeah. Feel this fluke. Thank you, Donald. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.